This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 18th, 2020. I'm Stephen Marzi, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Hey, Steve, before we start in with your questions, just wanted to point out that the sound quality may not be what people are used to because we are no longer in our studio. Like many other people, we're at home and we're on the phone. Right. I hope we will nonetheless be audible and comprehensible to our audience. Over the past couple of weeks, we've mentioned supportive care for COVID-19 quite a bit. So I wanted to ask today both what that means and then what some more specific treatments might become available. So if we can start with what's happening today, what's the appropriate management of a patient who presents to the hospital with fever, cough, and shortness of breath? Well, I think we've been saying, Steve, all along that good supportive care is really important. And for someone who is short of breath, that means the sorts of interventions that you do for anyone with pneumonia, including supplemental oxygen, and if necessary, use of a ventilator. There is some question about non-invasive ventilatory assistance and its role in spreading infection in the hospital. Uh, Lindsay, you may want to comment on that. Eric, you're correct that we need to think through the potential biology of this pathogen and a hospital and nosocomial risk. Since we know that this virus is present in the upper airway and the nasopharynx, adding positive pressure may lead to aerosolization or spreading of the organism in the surrounding environment. And that's an area of active investigation to decrease risk. We don't know exactly what's going on there, but it's a concern. And our infection control colleagues are systematically trying to mitigate that concern until better data are available. But I think, Eric, one of the other things that we do have to think about is that when somebody presents with viral pneumonia, let's say, and we're worried about COVID-19, we don't actually know that's what they have. So I think that part of good supportive care in my mind is making sure you have the correct diagnosis and it's not flu or community-acquired pneumonia as those would require the appropriate directive therapies so that the importance of establishing the correct diagnosis is central. And then once COVID-19 is diagnosed, then one needs to give the appropriate oxygen as Eric mentioned. Of course, as we've mentioned before and won't get into any further today, the testing is not still widely available and still doesn't have very rapid turnaround. So I think you make a very good point, Lindsay, that we need to be testing for the things that we can test for while we can, even if we don't have immediate availability of COVID-19 testing. So thinking beyond that supportive care, we've heard quite a bit about therapies that might actually be active against COVID-19. Can we talk about some of those? Start with antiviral agents. I know that there have been populations treated with those drugs. What have we learned? Well, I think today we are publishing the first major study of efficacy that's done as a randomized controlled trial. And maybe, Lindsay, you want to talk about that. I think that studies of specific pathogen-directed therapies have been a tremendous challenge when a new outbreak emerges. We saw this with Ebola, where the ability to systematically determine if a new therapy works was very difficult given the conditions that the providers were in to be able to systematically determine what works. What is quite remarkable here is with the emergence of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 in early January, 
or Chinese colleagues were able to stand up a study within days of identifying the virus, a week or so after viral identification, to systematically look to see if Kaletra or Lopinavir Ritonavir added any benefit in the treatment of COVID-19. Quite remarkable that they were able to launch this study that quickly. Under these conditions, they made tough choices. It was open label, not placebo controlled, but that's very understandable given the realities of caring for patients and trying to advance knowledge. What they learned in this study is that it's unclear the efficacy of lopinavir-ritonavir through their primary endpoint as well as when measuring decrement in viral load. However, the study was small, the data are intriguing, and more work needs to be done to better define if this therapy has potential applicability for this virus. I want to echo your comments about how impressive it was that this study could get done under the circumstances in Wuhan at the very beginning of the outbreak. What kind of guidance does it provide to us in terms of using lopinavir, ritonavir? I think while there are some bright spots in there, fewer people died who were in the lopinavir, ritonavir arm, the lack of effect on the virus is concerning. The viral loads were pretty much identical for the two groups. And since this is a direct-acting antiviral agent, it should be decreasing the viral load. There are several reasons why it might not. A lot of those have to do with the pharmacology of the agent, which we don't really know in respiratory secretions. But also, it's not that potent as an antiviral agent. And so it might not be very effective, at least in those areas. Nevertheless, I agree, it bears some more research, but it's not the first thing to reach for right now, for sure. But I think, Eric, as you note, this is a real challenge. When we have sick patients, the temptation is to treat them with whatever might help. And I think what these data help show us is the importance of systematic investigation to better understand if what we think should work or want to work, whether or not it does work. And maybe at different dosing or at different timing of illness, lopinavir or might work. But what these data show us is that in this particular setting, it didn't have the effect that we all hoped it would. And I think that's critically important for us as a community to understand the importance of systematic investigation so we can actually figure out what does work and then really invest the resources to go to scale. Looking in another direction, there's been considerable controversy around the world about drugs that might modulate the receptor for the virus. What do you see as the role for ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers in preventing disease on the one hand or contributing to increased disease susceptibility on the other hand? Well, this goes to a general question, Steve, about what kinds of recommendations people can make for treating patients. Currently, more and more institutions and professional organizations are offering up guidelines for clinicians. And while guidelines are really helpful, it's just very useful that in the absence of anything else to be given some sort of suggestion as to what to do, I have to say the data driving them in many cases is really limited or completely absent in some cases. In the specific case of ACE inhibitors and ARBs, there are theoretical considerations, but the theoretical considerations go in both directions. There are some reasons to think that these drugs may increase the entry of virus, 
while there are others that suggest that it might decrease the entry of the virus. And without hard data, it's difficult to know what to do. It is important to remember that these are very useful drugs, that many patients have their hypertension controlled or their heart failure controlled using these agents. And so it's, I think, a little bit dangerous to be stopping drugs based on these conflicting preclinical pieces of evidence. Lindsay, would you agree with that? I agree. It's incredibly complicated to sort out because there are theoretical arguments where this class of agents, particularly the ARBs, may be beneficial by blocking the receptor or by manipulating this pathway, we may increase sensitivity to stimulation of the pathway and increase pathogenesis. Those are theoretical arguments with some in vitro data, but it's very hard to know what is actually at play clinically. And I think it's important for us not to start randomly changing our patient's medications, which has other potentially unwanted consequences if we rotate antihypertensives or other things that at this point we don't know. And current guidance from many groups are to leave patients where they are until we can get better data to guide our thinking. Now, in the specific instance of these drugs, it's very likely that the evidence that we'll get is not going to be randomized controlled trial evidence. It's going to be likely observational data, which won't be as strong. Nevertheless, it's going to be what we get, and I think it's important to collect that information. I mean, along these lines, Eric, there's also the controversy about non-steroidals. And whether or not those medications may increase sensitivity to more severe illness or ameliorate symptoms and discomfort in patients who take them. And those data, too, at this point are speculative. And it is creating a lot of controversy across our communities about what to do. But I think there aren't any directive data about how to handle non-steroidals either. And we'll need epidemiologic and other data to try and make sense of what we should be doing. So in that regard, what about corticosteroids and other anti-inflammatory agents? What's the situation there? So, Steve, I think that what you raise is a very important perspective about the issue of when is the virus causing the damage and when is the aberrant host response causing damage. And that has to be better investigated, but it does look as if there's, in many cases, a biphasic illness or there is illness that occurs later on during the course that often leads to lung failure and intubation and intensive critical care management. And one of the emerging observations is that the aberrant inflammatory response may play a role there. Some have talked about giving corticosteroids. But the challenge with corticosteroids is it has many other side effects, and the evidence that it provides benefit is very limited. And in fact, in SARS-1, there may have been harm. So it's a complicated assessment, but the current thinking is that it's probably not helpful unless there are other reasons for ICU management to use corticosteroids. So I'd add to that the sort of infectious disease mantra around steroids, which is that steroids are generally regarded as safe in many circumstances, as long as the patient is being treated with effective antipathogen drugs. Now, in the case of COVID-19, of course, we don't have those drugs yet, and that means the virus will continue to replicate. 
And if you look at the study that was done in Wuhan, the Khalifa study, clearly patients continued to shed virus for a very long time. The most critically ill patients continued to produce virus for weeks in some cases. And it should be kept in mind that if we're treating with steroids, we might increase the amount of viral replication, which could hurt that patient. Agree, Erica. And I think that part of the inflammatory cascade later in the illness, particularly in our critically ill patients, there are observations that show there's often high IL-6, and some are looking at IL-6 blockers as ways to dampen the aberrant immune response. And that's an area of active investigation that requires more study, but is a promising approach to be defined as to how best to interfere with that pathway in our patients who are getting sicker. There's been some suggestion that hydroxychloroquine could alter the uptake of the virus into cells. What's the evidence for hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19? Like a lot of the agents we're discussing, hydroxychloroquine has been used in individual patients and in case series. Very difficult to extrapolate from these, though, whether it was efficacious. Once again, this is an example of therapy which needs to be tested. Along those lines, though, I'd say that there's an important message here, which is essentially Lindsay and I are answering almost every question you ask, Steve, by we don't know. And when you don't know something, you have to figure out what the correct answer is. Now, unfortunately, we're in the middle of a big and growing epidemic here in the U.S. and in Europe, and that means there are going to be a lot of cases. It also means that there is the opportunity to ask and answer many of these questions and figure out during the course of the epidemic how we can best treat our patients. And this is a chance even for single-center studies of agents like hydroxychloroquine or any of the antivirals that are being considered. And I think that these studies, as illustrated by the Wuhan study that we just published, don't have to be perfect. We don't have to spend a year designing a study, getting hold of a matched placebo, figuring out a tremendous randomization strategy. Um, I think that we can do the best we can and try to figure out what the answers are along the way. I'm not encouraging people to do poor quality research, but I think we can do practical research right now. And without it, we're not going to know the answers to some of these questions. I can't echo enough Eric's comments where, as we see with the lopinavir-ritonavir study, these medications don't always work exactly the way we want. So we need to do practical studies to figure out the best way to use these medications, be it the correct dosimetry, the timing of illness, the proper parameters to show efficacy, so that we understand what works and then can really invest in increasing those strategies. And I think hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, there are a variety of strategy or agents that are being proposed that have very limited high-quality data that we need high-quality data to really guide our treatment and to manage our tendency to want to treat everybody with everything because we need to realize that not everything works and we need to figure out how and when it works so that we can really benefit our patients. Again, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.